Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On this deep dive episode, we're talking about the justice's role in the inauguration, Biden's new acting top lawyer at the court, and we're bringing on Kelly Henry, who represented Lisa Montgomery, one of the 13 people executed by the outgoing Trump administration. And just a warning at the top of the show here, we are going to be discussing some graphic details of murder and sexual assault, so we want you to have that warning up front. And Kimberly, before we get into the interview, we did inaugurate a new president this week, and the justices play a role in this. Can you give our listeners some background on that and how Chief Justice Roberts has previously failed in this simple task? Right. So Chief Justice of the United States, and not, as Senator Klobuchar said on Wednesday, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice of the United States typically swears in the president. It's a precedent that dates back to the late 1700s. Um, And as you mentioned, Robert's first time around swearing in a president, Barack Obama, in 2009, didn't go so well. Robert's misplaced a word. And even though Obama seemed to notice that Roberts had misspoke, He paused a little bit to give the chief justice some time to correct his line. Eventually, President Obama ended up repeating the mistake. So the two decided to have another go at it the next day, uh, just to make sure that there was no um, constitutional complaints. And how'd it go this time? Who was swearing in who? Well, Biden wasn't swearing in the chief justice. It was the chief justice swearing in Biden. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the vice president, though, too, right? We had Sotomayor. That's right. And so we had Justice Sotomayor, who swore in Vice President Kamala Harris. The tradition of an associate justice administering the oath to the vice president isn't as firm as the chief justice's role in swearing in the president. But an interesting note is that Sotomayor also swore in Biden as VP in 2013. So she's a popular choice. Uh, Four other justices attended, including all of President Trump's nominees. Uh, The three oldest justices, Breyer, Thomas, and Alito, didn't attend the inauguration because, you know, they're old and COVID. Right. And we know that because the court actually said that in a statement that they were skipping for that reason, right? Well, I I paraphrase. The court didn't say they Mm -hmm. were old. um, Right. That was the gist. So before we go to our interview with Kelly, just to set up the case a bit, because we don't have someone from the government on and the government that executed Lisa Montgomery doesn't really even exist anymore. So here's what former Attorney General William Barr said in announcing Lisa Montgomery's execution date back in October, referring to her crime as especially heinous. He said Montgomery fatally strangled a pregnant woman, Bobby Jo Stinnett, cut open her body and kidnapped her baby in December 2004 as part of a premeditated murder kidnap scheme. Montgomery drove from her home in Kansas to Stinnett's home in Missouri, purportedly to purchase a puppy. And once inside, Montgomery attacked and strangled Stinnett, who was eight months pregnant until the victim lost consciousness. Montgomery then cut into Stinnett's abdomen with a kitchen knife, causing her to regain consciousness. A struggle ensued, and Montgomery strangled Stinnett to death. Montgomery took the baby with her and attempted to pass it off as her own. Montgomery is convicted in 2007 and sentenced to death. Miraculously, the baby survived and is a teenager today. So with that backdrop from the government's view of the case, let's go to our interview with Montgomery's lawyer, Kelly Henry. 
Kelly Henry is chief of the Federal Public Defender's Capital Habeas Unit in Nashville. She's worked on death penalty litigation for decades, including representing Lisa Montgomery, who was executed January 13th by the outgoing Trump administration. In 2019, she won the ABA's Justice John Paul Stevens Guiding Hand of Counsel Award. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So to help us set some of the background of the case, can you tell us a bit about Lisa Montgomery and how you got involved in the case? I first met Lisa in September of 2012 when um, my co-counsel and I were invited into the case by local attorney in Kansas City, Lisa Nury. We met Lisa at the Federal Medical Center in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where she was housed by um, BOP, basically in a hospital-type setting because of her severe mental illness. Um, Lisa was a survivor of the most horrific um, sexual, physical, psychological abuse that one can imagine. It took her a number of years to have enough trust in us to be able to give us all of her truth, but it was clear from the beginning that she was severely mentally ill and often dissociative. And so obviously there's been a lot of litigation over the years and it could take forever to get into all of that, but maybe you could take us just a little bit before her execution date was announced by former Attorney General Barr, just to set up the case a bit to that point at which in the fall, Barr announced the execution date. Sure. So Lisa's case actually went through the federal system very quickly. We were appointed to be her 2255 counsel, which is the statute governing Um, post-conviction petitions for criminal cases. So we were appointed to review what happened at trial and to file any post-conviction motion uh, that we felt would be appropriate in Lisa's case. And we found just shocking ineffective assistance of counsel in Lisa's case. We conducted a new mitigation investigation, talked to over 450 witnesses, It was through that investigation that we learned, um, not from Lisa, but from a person that she had confided in as a child, that her mother had trafficked her um, to men to be gang raped. Um, And it was through that investigation that we also learned more about her severe mental illness and psychosis. We presented all of that in a hearing in 2016 in Kansas City. It was a two-week hearing. We had over 35 witnesses over 6,000 pages of exhibits that were stipulated to by the government. Um, There was hardly any cross-examination of any of our witnesses. And yet the judge, who had been the trial judge in the case, um, who we had moved to recuse, ended up just dismissing our motion without even waiting for the transcript to be typed up. And also denied our motion or application for certificate of appealability which a lot of people don't know, but under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, if the judge does not give you a certificate of appealability, you can't appeal his decision. So Lisa was denied an appeal. We did not get to appeal that judge's decision, the judge who we asked to recuse himself because of bias in the case. We filed a petition for writ of certiorari um, dealing with some of the issues relating to the removal of Lisa's original capitally qualified counsel, um, a woman by the name of Judy Clark, who we will always believe if Judy had been allowed to stay on the case, you and I would not be having this discussion. Lisa would have pled guilty. She would have got life without parole. And 
the case would have been resolved back in you know, 2007. But there was a lot of misogyny involved in getting Judy off the case. Um, local federal defenders saying that he wasn't going to take um, orders from any damn woman. We thought that was a pretty good issue for cert. Um, the court denied cert without opinion. It was uh, the end of last term, actually. We filed a petition for rehearing in the summer of 2020, which was denied August of 2020. During that time, when I was consulting with experts who do other 2255 cases, because I usually do state court cases, 2254 cases. This was my first 2255. And I was consulting with experts. Do you think Lisa's going to be one of the ones that they're going to pick? And I was assured no, because the government had given a list of the people that they thought were eligible for execution. There were 10 people on that list, and Lisa was not one of them. So when we got the call on October the 16th of this year, we were floored. And the way we learned was by um, Lisa being put on the phone by the warden who had just read her the warrant. The situation Lisa was in, she was in what was called an admin unit. So she was like death row for one, right? Because she was the only woman. But the admin unit allowed her um, to be out with other inmates and you know have programs and group meals and things like that. She never had to be cuffed up so, you know, these large male guards in their tack uniforms show up at her cell and tell her to cuff up. And that's the first inclination of, of what's about to happen to her. And then they take her to the office and the warden reads the warrant. And then the warden dials the cell phone number for my co-counsel, Amy Harwell, and says, you know, Ms. Harwell, hold for your client, Lisa Montgomery. Now, this is 6 p.m. on a Friday. And, you know, Lisa's hyperventilating. She's completely distraught and hysterical. She could hardly speak. And Amy was saying, you know, Lisa, Lisa, what's going on? Tell us. You know, she's thinking someone, that, you know, one of Lisa's kids has died or something. And Lisa says, you don't know, you don't know I'm going to die on December 8th. And that's never happened to me before. I've had clients have execution dates set. I've always been able to deliver that news myself, which is not a great conversation to have, but at least you can help your client through it. Um, I think that she probably felt really betrayed, like we must have known and just didn't tell her. Um, Amy three-wayed me in on my cell phone. I was working on another case. I'm getting ready for the clemency hearing there. And, you know, Amy put me on and, and all I could say was, I'm so sorry, Lisa, we didn't know. We love you. We'll be there next week. We promise, we, you know, we're going we're gonna to figure something out. And then we tried to get in touch with her over the weekend and nobody returned our calls. Nobody returned our emails. So she spent that weekend um, immediately on what's called suicide watch. So it's not unusual for people who have death warrants to be put under observation because the government wants to make sure they don't kill themselves so that they can make sure that they get to kill them, which is bizarre in and of itself. But they knew, because they had been hospitalizing her and putting her on antipsychotics, that this news was going to exacerbate her mental illness. So they put her on the most severe suicide watch I'd ever heard of. When we got there on Monday, the 19th, um, she was in a suicide gown, which it's ridiculous. It's like a big puffy coat, right? But it had, she didn't have underwear. She didn't have a bra. She didn't have socks. 
They had taken her glasses from her. This is a woman whose vision was 2100 in both eyes. She didn't get her glasses back until they took her to Terre Haute. She, a woman who's a gang rape survivor, not allowing her to have her underwear is the most dehumanizing. But the thing that she really was upset about, she was upset about a lot of things, but she was a woman who would break out in hives if men were in the room with her because of what had happened. And this very large guard put Vaseline around her um, wedding ring and ripped it off of her. You know, it's just like to take that last piece of her identity. Her husband had, had stayed with her. Um, but to basically say, you know, you don't even deserve to have a wedding ring. And then put her under 24-hour observation with um, a camera in the ceiling where male guards could watch her use the restroom. She didn't use the restroom for almost a week after she was put on suicide watch. Uh, and they were, like, literally noting it. And if she wanted to get toilet paper, she had to ask, and then she would only be allowed four squares at a time. She didn't, she wasn't allowed paper or any writing instrument for almost two weeks, and then it was only a crayon and a single piece of paper. It ultimately worked up to 10 pieces of paper, and the week before they moved her to Terre Haute, they gave her a pen. Um, that was really upsetting. We did tell them we sued over this. We, we spent a lot of time trying to improve her conditions and got the ACLU involved, and they sued the um, they sued BOP. And we told them, if you keep her under these conditions, she's going to become incompetent. And, and she did. But she struggled very hard to maintain her sanity. And it, it took until the very end for her to become incompetent. I'm not sure if you're comfortable talking about this one, but um, one of the major factors in some of the most recent petitions that you filed was um, that you yourself contracted COVID. And I'm just wondering if you think that the Trump administration's decision to carry out these ex- these executions during the pandemic uh, contributed to that. There's no doubt that I, my co-counsel and I both got sick because of the decision to have these executions during the pandemic which was incredibly irresponsible, but I also think intentional because by setting all these executions during a time period where their lawyer, the client's lawyers would be hamstrung, provided the government an advantage. And we knew from watching the litigation that had occurred over the summer that simply going to court and asking for a stay of execution because we couldn't do our job was going to fall on deaf ears. So the choice was represent Lisa or not, put your health at risk or not. I mean, it's an impossible decision to have to make. And we had been very careful. I mean, I I had not seen my co-counsel, Amy Harwell, who was one of my dearest friends in the world since March, you know, even though she lives 10 miles away from me. Um, I'm in my master bedroom. This has been my office since March. But we didn't have a choice. I mean, this was a woman who we cared about. We had put our heart and soul into it. I mean, every lawyer has an obligation, of course, but there was something particularly um, special about Lisa. And so we thought, okay, we're, we're just going to, we're going to be really careful. We're going to wear N95s. Um, but, you know, you have to get in a hotel and you have to get in a rental car. You have to get in the airport or in the prison where we know BOP is not accurately reporting the number of COVID cases. The two weeks before Lisa left, two weekends in a row, um, 
when she was supposed to have family visits, they got canceled because there were entire units locked down because of COVID outbreaks down in Fort Worth. And interestingly, they did offer Lisa um, immunization two weeks before they killed her. She, she could have had one of the COVID shots, which is, again, just the most bizarre um, situation. Uh, she declined. Um, Lisa was not one who believed in vaccinations. But, um, Can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, contracting COVID impacted your ability to represent Lisa? It was devastating because, you know, at first I just lost my sense of smell and I thought, oh, this is going to be okay. You know, it'll be fine. If all it is, I can't smell, I can deal with this. Within two days, the fatigue and brain fog was just overwhelming. I would sit in meetings on, you know, Zoom with other people and forget what I had just said or, you know, send the emails to my co-counsel that I had sent the day before, not realizing that I had done it. And we were very fortunate to have the support of Sandra Babcock and the folks at Cornell University Death Penalty Worldwide um, Clinic, um, her colleague Zora Ahmed and Joe Margulies and Ed Anwarsi filed a lawsuit um, in the District Court, uh, District of Columbia, based on our getting sick and saying that you know we can't represent Lisa, we can't do the the clemency proceedings that we we need to do, and that at least allowed us to present clemency, although not still not in the way that we would have if there hadn't been a pandemic. We also were fortunate to have um, lawyers from Wilmer Hale and O'Melveny come in and assist us with some of the litigation that was last, you know, quote unquote, last minute, but litigation that didn't become ripe until the execution date was set. But my ability to do the things that I would normally do when a client was under warrant was completely compromised. And bringing in these law firms, and I think I I have a thank you list, it's over a hundred of people I have to thank for jumping in. They didn't have the historical knowledge of the case and they can't learn, you know, 10 terabytes of data in two months time. And so, you know, Amy and Lisa, Nuri and I, we'll have to live for the rest of our lives with the question of what if? What if we hadn't got sick? What if we had come up with some other way? You know, um, Wednesday was particularly hard for us because um, it was, I think in the articles, people saw that Lisa had a calendar that counted down to January 20th. And we knew we just had to get her eight more days. How are we going to get her eight more days? And to not be able to figure out how to do that is heartbreaking. And so the reason though, that the execution date for someone listening to this, because I mentioned in introducing you how Lisa was executed on January 13th, but in relaying the story, you mentioned how the date was initially set for December 8th. It's true, right? In a strange way that your becoming sick is what actually effectively made the execution happen later than it otherwise would have, right? Can you explain that a little bit? Certainly. So the judge in um, the District of Columbia, Judge Moss, ruled that Lisa was entitled to have her capitally qualified counsel, which was Amy Harwell and I, prepare her clemency application. Um, She has a a statutory right to counsel that was being deprived of her because of our sickness. 
So he stayed the execution until December 31st and ordered us to file a clemency petition by December the 24th. And that if we couldn't file the petition by December 24th because of our illness, that we were to get someone else to do it for us. The stay of execution then would expire on December 31st. And, you know, so then we were surprised on November 23rd when the government served Lisa with a new warrant. Um, this time setting the execution date for January 12th. They did not uh, appeal Judge Moss's stay of execution. They would later claim that that was some sort of gift to Lisa, but, you know, the fact of the matter is the judge's decision was legally correct, and so they didn't appeal it because it was legally correct. But when they set it for de- or January 12th, I started looking into the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations, that you know, deals with setting new execution dates because I had never had the experience of having an execution date reset during a stay. I sort of thought a stay of execution deprived the government of authority to set a new date. And that's when we got the the folks at O'Melveny involved because it seemed clear to us that the statute or the CFR did not allow them to set a new execution date uh, during the pendency of a stay. And in fact, Judge Moss agreed with us Unfortunately, a panel of Seventh Circuit or the D.C. Circuit did not agree, and um, you know, the Supreme Court did not take cert on that issue or, or a stay. The other issue that um, came to light had to do with the interpretation of the Federal Death Penalty Act. Again, an issue that could not have been presented before, that Missouri law should govern when the execution date should be set. And Missouri law would have said 90 days, which would have put her execution date into March. Um, The en banc court of the D.C. Circuit found that there was a real issue there. And in fact, the the circuits are split on how far the FDPA requires the um, applicability of underlying state law. And then the Supreme Court lifted that stay um, with three dissents. So ultimately, the Supreme Court uh, did not stay the execution and denied your request. And many of those came up through um, what we've called the shadow docket. And like many cases that go that route, the majority did not explain its reasoning. And just wondering what it's like from the standpoint of someone who has worked on the case for so long. What's it like to not only lose, but to get no explanation of why it is that they haven't sided with you? You know, it. There's always that question, did anybody write? You know, um, we had stays of execution out of three different circuit courts, all of which got lifted in the course of 36 hours. And so this wasn't just asking for a stay of execution. These were stays that, you know, from the Eighth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, D.C. Circuit, and to basically say nothing is really disheartening. Um, I was telling a, a colleague the other day that we, part of the, the grieving process, and I, I feel like I'm going through all seven stages at once just to multitask, but, you know, like, what does it matter? Like, either either I'm not good enough as a lawyer to figure out how to get eight more days, or there was just simply no way because they just decided it was time for her to die and the law be damned. It was somewhat um, soothing to read Justice Sotomayor's dissent. Um, and many of us reading the dissent sort of thought, well, 
she waited for Higgs because to dissent for Lisa, to write for Lisa, maybe would have given false hope to Corey Johnson's team or Dustin Higgs' team, you know, because when you see somebody write, you think, oh, okay, there's something else I can do or this, you know, means something. Um, let's come up with a different, different tact. And it could just be the fact of the matter that the execution was occurring during such a tumultuous week. Uh, you know, President Trump was impeached the day of Lisa's execution. The day that I was making the presentation, the clemency presentation that Lisa had the right to, um, the insurrection was occurring during the presentation. Like I look on CNN and people are scaling the walls of the Capitol and it's time to get on the WebEx to to talk with the Office of Pardon Attorney Lawyers who were in their homes in D.C., um, but, you know, one has to wonder how much they can focus on this presentation when, you know, the republic is literally um, at risk. So, you know, I don't know how much that affected the court's ability to ponder our, our cases. I don't know how much that impacted the ability of anyone to write. We don't have access to that. But to have it feel like your work is meaningless is fairly disheartening when that has been your um, life's profession. So, Kelly, after the Supreme Court orders came out siding with the government, you released a lengthy statement that really blasted the whole process. I'll read just the first part of it. It says, quote, the craven bloodlust of a failed administration was on full display tonight. Everyone who participated in the execution of Lisa Montgomery should feel shame, end quote. And so most of this statement, at least as I'm reading it, really just focused on President Trump and the government itself in carrying out and setting the execution. I'm wondering, though, given our discussion being about the Supreme Court, do you consider the court to have been a participant in the execution effectively? Can I look up the ethics of commenting on that? (laughs) Um, There's definitely been a shift at the court, there's no doubt you have to wonder if Justice Ginsburg was still alive if there had been a different result. Um, We'll be living with the the shift in focus of the court probably for the rest of my legal career. There's no doubt in my mind that Lisa Montgomery and Corey Johnson in particular were both executed in violation of the Eighth Amendment. And then the question becomes, you, you know, we had a Trump-appointed judge write a 28-page opinion saying that Lisa was likely incompetent to be executed and scheduling an expedited hearing at, at the trial court level in the Southern District of Indiana. And so this was no liberal friend. So what the court has to do when they're looking at a motion to vacate an execution date is weigh the equities. So the equity of violating the Eighth Amendment versus the equity of these executions just have to move forward. And the clear focus of the court is these executions just have to move forward. Corey Johnson was indisputably intellectually disabled. Nobody could deny that fact. And yet they just decided it was time for him to die. And so that Eighth Amendment violation just didn't matter. And so I think Justice Sotomayor has it right. It was not justice. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on and giving us an insider perspective on all of this. We appreciate it. 
thank you for the opportunity. Nice to meet y'all. So Kimberly, as we talked about previously, we're going to have to wait and see what Biden does with the death penalty and a bunch of other issues that might be different from the position taken by the previous administration. And we did, though, learn this week who's going to be the face of the new administration, at least for now, at the Supreme Court in making these potential reversals in front of the justices. What do we know about Elizabeth Prelogger, the new acting Solicitor General? Well, she is a former SG alum, and she was most recently a partner at Cooley. She'll be rejoining the DOJ as the principal deputy, meaning that she'll be the acting SG, that is the federal government's top lawyer at the Supreme Court, until Biden determines um, who he's going to pick as the SG and they get through the confirmation process. Now, Prelogger was detailed to the Mueller team to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 election, and uh, she had not one but two Supreme Court clerkships, one with RBG and then again with Justice Kagan. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. The Supreme Court is taking a four-week break because, you know, they just heard five cases. So got to give them a break. Remember, they're old. Um, Anyway, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. This is Adam Allington, and I'm here to announce a new season of Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast series from Bloomberg Law. My co-hosts and I will speak with African-American attorneys and hear their perspectives on how big law is, or in some cases, isn't adapting to become more diverse and inclusive. It's not fair, but what can be better than being on the front lines of helping to make this country better for all of us? If not us, who? If not now, when? Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.